You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us for having been here and heard your word. We ask that you'd open our hearts and send Jesus straight in there to heal and to restore. And it is in his name we pray, amen. We're going to be looking at the passage from Philippians today, Philippians 4. So if you want to open your bulletins or open to Philippians 4, that's the word of God coming at us today. In Philippians, Paul is writing from prison around 62 AD. And Philippi is this town in which he planted a church some 10 to 12 years prior to writing this letter. So this is a man who has a great affection for this local assembly of the people of God who are gathering around the word of God. And he's writing 10 years later because he's hearing of things that he needs to address. And he's writing to them uh, all sorts of things. And Philippians is one of the first books that I studied seriously as a young adult. So it has a real dear place in my heart. And in fact, I want to work through just a few tweetable zingers from Philippians to jog our memories, if we've ever read the book, of just how great it is. And maybe you'll remember some of these phrases if you've read it before. And it's kind of a way of getting to our passage by journeying through it. Paul says in chapter 1, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Chapter 2, Have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Whatever was to my gain, I count as loss, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. See all these phrases and more take us to the point where after three chapters we arrive at the conclusion, which is something that Paul often does in in his letters where he blows up some theology and then gives some exhortation some things that he wants to say to the church based on this theology. And many call it his sort of staccato exhortations, to use a musical term, where he's just blitzing with ideas, and he's giving them thoughts to hang their hearts on. And if you read this passage from Philippians 4, 4 through 7, there's a central phrase, which I I almost don't think I know. It's precisely why those who chose the lectionary readings, the readings that we have in our services week in and week out, I think that's why they chose this passage for Advent. Because right in the middle, grounding all of these exhortations, is this phrase, the Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is near. He's kind of quoting from the Psalms here. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near. There's a proximity, and this proximity of Jesus Christ gives us the power and the ability to sort of stomach what he's about to say, but to take it with joy. The Lord is near. And so in this final section of Paul's epistle, God's giving basically three insights, three golden nuggets. In other words, if you take all the theology of the first three chapters of Philippians and you melt it down through the cauldron of life circumstances— you end up with three densely packed precious stones. 
Jesus is the fruit, or joy is the fruit of Jesus' rest. Verse 4. Patience is the security of Jesus' nearness. Verse 5. And then in verse 6, prayer is the reversal of our anxiety. And we'll be hearing two of these today. That's where I want to focus. First, prayer is the reversal of our anxiety. And second, Jesus is the, or joy is the fruit of Jesus' rest. So first, prayer is the reversal of our anxiety. Verse 6 says, this famous verse, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety and prayer. The Word of God pits these two things together in strong antithesis. Don't be anxious, but pray. Paul inserts a particular word here that gives us insight, great insight, into what it is specifically about prayer that relieves our anxiety. By prayer and supplication, Eucharistia, with thanksgiving. There's something about giving thanks that's really central to prayer. You know, when we're new at prayer, if you're in a Christian church that's trying to disciple you well and train you, you often learn this acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S. And it's a way of teaching us how to pray because a lot of times you and I pray and we sort of get stuck. We don't know what to pray for. And ACTS is a nice acronym that help, uh, helps us. And maybe you've heard it before. A, adoration. C, confession. T, thanksgiving. S, supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's a way of thinking through the categories of prayer so that we don't get stuck. It's kind of modeled after the structure of the Lord's Prayer, and it's a wonderful tool. In fact, it helps us get out of prayer ruts, and it's something that I teach to my own kids. And I love this. It continues to be useful in my own prayer life. But the Word of God here, it challenges that idea that thanksgiving is just a subset of prayer. Of course, we want to spend time in prayer thanking God for what he's given us. But here we learn that thanksgiving is less a topic or a category of prayer and more of a posture in which all of our prayers are prayed. If prayer were likened to a room, then thanksgiving is the scent that permeates every cubic foot. If you're adoring God in prayer then your prayers smell like thanksgiving. If you're confessing, it carries the zest of thanksgiving. If you're interceding for others, thanksgiving effervesces out of every word. And the question is, what does this have to do with anxiety? You know, one of my best friends at the Advent is actually that guy sitting back there at the soundboard. He's a licensed therapist. His name's Kent Michael. And he and I have lots of wonderful conversations about sundry topics. He's getting his PhD in psychology. So I end up barraging him with questions about uh, the human makeup and human identity and nature. And, and I shot Kent this email. Uh, by the way, he's going to be, uh, I'm just shameless promotion plug commercial. He's going to be uh, leading us in, in a forum tonight at 6.15 on a topic that 
probably hits home for a lot of us during the holidays, anxiety and depression. So uh, I really would encourage you to come. He and I have dialogued about his presentation, and I found it really, really meaningful. Uh, but I've sent Kent this email a couple weeks ago as I was wrestling through this passage of Scripture, and I said, what is it about prayer with thanksgiving that's so disarming to anxiety? And Kent wrote these things, and I almost just want to quote them to you. He said, I'm reminded of Francis Schaeffer's quote, The beginning of men's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. He said, I would imagine that there's a link between our rebellion, the fall, and the symptoms of anxiety. It's my understanding, Kent says, that a a different part of our brains utilized when we pray and read, for, for example, when we read the Bible. Thus, by praying and or reading, We inhibit our emotional brain and engage our thinking brain. Moreover, thankfulness is going to come from our thinking brain as well. I don't know about you, and listen to this. It's challenging for me to feel threatened and thankful at the same time. Did you hear that? Thankfulness tends to expel many of our perceived threats, which often are the root of our anxiety. Also, He says, I think praying offers the opportunity, this is gold, to shift the responsibility that we feel for others onto God who can actually manage it. That's good. And I think he's exactly right. Prayer reminds us that we're supposed to let God be God and we're supposed to remain trusting and faith-filled creatures. God can and should handle all the God-level stuff And we can release our futile death grip on all the things that we've been trying to control. All the people that we've been trying to control. Do you actually think that you have the power to change someone else? Can you work death and resurrection in another individual or in an impossible situation? Is that really within your power? Let God be God. It's really a freeing word. You know, prayer, in a sense, is the quintessential act of letting God be God. In the activity of prayer, we actually cease activity, cease our striving, and surrender ourselves to the activity of God. And it's in that place that we see that prayer is the reversal of anxiety. And secondly, joy is the fruit of Jesus' rest. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. The first thing we can't miss here from this admonition to rejoice is that it's grounded in properly, I'm going to use some words here, properly distinguishing between faith and works. Please hang with me for a second because we need to rewind to when Paul has already encouraged the Philippians to rejoice back in chapter 3. In fact, like many sermons, he says finally, way before he's done, and says, in conclusion, my brothers, at the top of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. And if you were to read the rest of chapter 3, all of a sudden, Paul opens up that part of the way that rejoicing works is properly distinguishing what it means to live by faith and not by works, to live by trusting in Jesus Christ, and not by trusting in our own ability to keep God's law, and to do what God asks us to do, but rather 
surrender ourselves and say, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Which is why Paul crescendos in chapter 3 and says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ and be found, repeated phrase, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Freedom. We live by faith and not by works. Paul says there's something to the joy that's to be found in Christ in believing and living in that reality as opposed to kicking against the goads and attempting to please God based on our own works and our own merit. So somehow for God, a pure faith apart from works is intrinsic to true joy. And because of this, I want to give you an off-the-wall definition of faith that teases this out. Faith is the life posture that acknowledges that everything that we have is a gift and that everything we truly need has already been given to us in Jesus Christ. One more time. Faith is the life posture that acknowledges that everything we have is a gift and that everything we truly need has already been given to us in Christ. The best picture of faith that I can give you is that now iconic and most Christian of Christmas films, Elf. <laughs> Buddy the Elf is the most joyful person on the planet. Part of the reason that Elf is so entertaining year after year and we can't get enough of it is because set against the backdrop of a bunch of depressed and anxious New Yorkers comes this beaming, joyful, you know, he's, he's not able to be assailed in any way. His joy is pure and beautiful and he walks around the streets of New York happy all day long amidst all these angry, depressed, sad people. And he's not phased by them. He's not affected by them. All their negativity doesn't touch him. He's the picture of Christian joy. And you know, when we look at Elf, a superficial read of that movie says, well, he's really naive. I mean, he grew up on the North Pole. He really doesn't know how life works. I think that's more of a superficial read than it is an actual read of maybe some of the emotional and psychological dynamics being exposited. And yes, I think there's something deep about Elf. Because Buddy the Elf, in his apparent naivete, though it makes the movie entertaining, shows us a picture of what joy looks like when it comes from something other than circumstances. Buddy the Elf, in a sense, is a picture of mature, joyful Christianity. Because he perceives everything around him as a gift. Right? Do you remember that one illustration where he's kind of walking out of the subway, he turns the corner, and there's that little railing there, and all of a sudden, underneath the railing, God has provided pieces of gum for him to grab and put in his mouth, and he just can't get enough. He's filling his mouth up with gum, because there before him are gifts. And that's the idea time and again. He walks into a situation, and his eyes are open to receiving whatever life's throwing at him as a gift. The truth is that joy comes naturally to those who experience life as a gift. Those who receive life as a gift almost don't hear Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord always as a command. It's more like, duh, what isn't there to rejoice about? To the gifted life, joy almost comes like a side effect. And here's what we need to tie into what we've been hearing before. Thankful prayer, the reversal of anxiety. 
What is thanksgiving other than rejoicing in the good gifts that God has given us? I was reminded of this recently. This happens at this cathedral quite a bit. For me, as the canon for liturgy and worship, you'd be surprised the kind of phone calls we get about strange things. And I periodically get phone phone calls of people asking for technical questions about the Book of Common Prayer and about our liturgy. And I got yet another one, and my eyes rolled, and I thought, this is exhausting, I don't have time for this. And I'll just call this guy Simon. Simon called, and he wanted to know a bit more about the way the Book of Common Prayer worked with the lectionary, and how he was supposed to be reading these scriptures. And I was going to help him and then sort of hang up the phone. But the Holy Spirit just kind of prodded me and said, you need to get over your eye rolling, Zach, and listen to this guy. And maybe see if you get together with him and see what sort of makes him tick and why he's asking you these questions. So I did, and we got together for coffee one time. uh, And I heard his story, and he's not a terribly wealthy man. He lives on the south side. Uh, He kind of shared his story of brokenness. He's a man with a lot of affliction over the course of his life. And then we went out a second time. And uh, I took him out to lunch at Chick-fil-A in Five Points. And there we were, we got our lunches together, and as we were sitting, talking, sharing some really wonderful things, I just felt, gosh, the Lord's working, we're opening up the scriptures, we're talking about meaningful things with regards to the prodigal son and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Then all of a sudden, he opens up his Chick-fil-A sandwich. He takes a bite, and then whatever he was saying just kind of fell by the wayside, and he stopped and he just said, oh my gosh, that's the most delicious chicken sandwich I've had in a long time. This is amazing. And he was just enjoying it so much. And he was almost beside himself. It was like we couldn't continue the whole conversation because he was really enjoying this chicken sandwich. I was eating the same thing. I didn't find as much joy as he did. And in fact, during the middle of our conversation, the manager walks by and he's like, he grabs his arm and says, you guys make great chicken sandwiches. This is incredible. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? I thought about it for a long time. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. Now this guy is perceiving what's coming at him as a gift. And therefore, he's not taking it for granted. And out from him, almost instinctually, comes all this joy. You know, part of the reason, Advent, that we need the poor among us. And hear me clearly when I say, we don't just need to serve the poor. We need poor Adventers. We need to be in community with the poor. And the reason we need it is because we learn from those brothers and sisters what the Christian life really is, the gifted life. And this makes sense, too, of why Jesus came into the world as a poor man. How could he live and demonstrate the gifted life so vividly if he were rich? You know, remember that he said that I live, my bread, is my food is to do the will of the Father. It also makes sense why the poor had a much easier time receiving the teachings and ministry of Jesus. It makes sense why Jesus said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it would for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When you're poor, it's a lot easier to recognize what you have, that it's come to you as a gift. You're less tempted to say, I've earned this. The wealthy, like me, are far more tempted because of our inherent self-righteousness, to de-gift the gifts of life, to refashion them not as gifts, but as something that we've earned. And when we de-gift those gifts, make no mistake, we de-joy them too. That was my problem at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. 
My sandwich was less enjoyable, not because it was qualitatively different than Simon's, or not even because I eat those sandwiches more regularly. It wasn't just the familiarity of it, but it was because my own wealth blinded me to the fact that that sandwich was that very day a gift of the Lord's provision in answer to the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So if joy is really the natural byproduct or side effect of the gifted life, why in the world does Paul have to command it? If joy is native to the operating system, why does it need attention? Shouldn't it just be running in the background of our OS? Why? The straight-up answer is sin, the flesh, the devil. Part of our collective brokenness and fallenness is that you and I have a blinded vision. Our vision is cloudy. We have cataracts over our spiritual eyes, distorting our ability to perceive things as they really are. We don't see the gifts of God as gifts. And understandably, it's always hardest to see gifts as gifts in the midst of trial and suffering, isn't it? Remember, though, that Paul himself, as he writes this admonition, isn't writing from a mansion or a resort. He's writing from prison. And as he's putting pen to paper and scribbling these things, scribbling the command to rejoice in the Lord always, he's hearing the jingle of the chains shackled to his writing hand. He recognizes that in suffering it's hard. And he's been there. He knows that. And it's why he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, sufferer. I will say it, rejoice. Remember the gifts of God and take heart. And the question is, what gifts of God could possibly offer the sufferer enough joy to counterbalance and tip the scales out of despair and anxiety and into joy? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He uses the metaphor, this guard metaphor, someone who stands at a Roman garrison at the front and who's watching out over the land for any danger to keep the Roman peace. But instead, peace is the guard itself. Peace will guard your heart. Have you ever paid attention, if you've been a part regularly of the rhythms of our communion liturgy, have you ever paid attention to the where, where the word peace falls in our liturgy each week? It happens twice. And I hope that you would pay attention. And even to the end of this morning prayer liturgy at the end of the service. It happens once in, in Holy Communion after confession, the declaration of forgiveness, and these comfortable words, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for God so loved the world. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And at the end of that, it says, almost with an implicit, therefore, the peace of the Lord be always with you and with thy spirit. And then it happens one more time. After we've received communion, another illustration and preaching of the gospel, the peace of God, quoting this passage of scripture, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. The liturgy knows that we get peace from God 
when we apprehend the gift who is Jesus Christ given to us, which is why it only comes after we've confessed our sin and been honest. And God tells us of the provision of who Jesus is and his life and his death for us. It only comes after we come to the table and hear the good news of Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. Therefore, you have peace with God. And why is this the peace that passes all understanding? It's because it defies all conventional wisdom about how to find peace in this world. Conventional wisdom says we find peace by pursuing it, by creating space in our lives or creating it, by working for it, by meditating for it, by earning it. But the upside-down wisdom of God tells us that peace is a gift in Christ. Poet W.H. Auden said this, Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. The peace of understanding, the peace of conventional wisdom, is only able to entertain the possible. But the peace that passes all understanding must look to the impossible, to the miraculous. You know, for sinners like you and me, there's only one possibility before a God who is good and just and holy. That possibility is a guilty verdict and a death sentence. Justice demands it. But at Christmas, the impossible happened. In the words of our passage, the Lord drew near. The Lord is at hand. Spirit, who knew no physicality, became flesh for you. Impossible. Holiness that knew no sin became sin for you. Impossible. Righteousness that knew no imperfection became unrighteousness for you. Impossible. That impossible miracle for you has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that God-man did something. That baby grew up and he went to the cross and died for you. Jesus himself is the peace that passes all understanding. So repent and receive the gift of him afresh today and rejoice. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.